Acts chapter 3, verses 11 through chapter 4, verse 4, says this. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people utterly astounded, ran together to them into the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And his name, by faith in his name, he has made this man strong whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given this man the rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, turn back that your sins may be blotted out. That times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaimed these days, You are the son of the prophet, the covenant that God made with your father, saying to Abraham, And in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to be first, to bless you by turning by turning every one of you from your wickedness. And as you were speaking, as they were speaking to the people, the priest and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them into custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who heard the word believed and the number of the men came to about 5,000. Father, this is your word to us. God, we pray that we would be open to it. God, that your spirit would speak to us as we approach this together this morning. In your son's holy name, amen. As to catch us up just a little bit, last week what we looked at was the first part of chapter 3. And it's this moment where Peter... And John are going into the temple and he sees this lame man sitting at the temple gate and they speak to him. He asks for money. He speaks to them and he says, I have no silver. I have no gold. But what I do have, I give to you in the name of Jesus. Stand up and walk. 
The man stands up, he walks, they go into the temple. Everyone is amazed and shocked at what is going on. This is what we pick up here. It says, while he clung to Peter and John. So they make their way through the temple. But this man does not leave Peter and does not leave John. Because these are the men that just did something for them through Christ, obviously. But as he's starting to understand this more, this is something this man, these men have done for him that no one else has done for him as he's been at this gate for all of his life. So he's clinging to them. He's clung to them. He's holding on to them. He's following them around. Because where else is he, or is he to go but to the two men that have done something miraculous in his life? So we get to the section of Scripture this morning. And I reminded us this, of this earlier, but I want to remind us again to kind of prepare our hearts for what we're going to be looking at in this. As I made this statement, and I stand by it so heavily, is that God healed the lame man to soften his and the hearts of others for the gospel. And we see that's exactly what we're seeing transitioned in verse 11. It says, while he clung to Peter and John, he's holding on to them. It says, all the people, we understand that the word all here may not mean everyone in the temple, but it very well could mean everyone. Like John 3.16 says, for all who believe, it's talking about all who believe in, in the world. It's not talking about everyone will come to Christ that's in the world, but all who believe in him. So sometimes the word all is just talking about everyone that's around the one that is preaching or teaching. Here, where it's uncertain. Could everyone in the temple be following after Peter and John, hearing the words that are about to be preached? Very possible. We certainly see that it got the attention of the religious leaders and it caused them to be greatly annoyed. So these people are gathered around them. And it says they were utterly astonished, astounded, utterly astounded. They're amazed. They're shocked. They certainly knew that this Jesus guy did these things, but he's dead and he's gone. They killed him, as Peter so boldly says in just a moment. They're astounded at what just happened because they knew this man. He had been at the temple gate for years because he was born lame. So they run together to them in the portico called Solomon's. So all of these people are following Peter, they're following John, and they follow him to this place called Solomon's Portico. Um, I've referenced this place a lot, but could not remember the name. Any other time I've talked about it. But essentially, this was a place on the eastern court of the temple. Really the court known as the court of the Gentiles. And it was this place on the eastern court that was much like a porch. Portico kind of makes sense, right? It was this covered porch area off the eastern gate where in between where the Gentiles could come in. And why this is so significant is if you just flip over with me real quick to John chapter 10, verse 23. John 10, 23. If you don't want to turn, I'll, I'll read it certainly. John 10, 23. And it says this. And Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. Now, colonnade sounds different, but he's talking about the same place here that Jesus regularly gathered his disciples in this place. But we also see, if you just flip over to Acts chapter 5, we're going to look at verse 12. 
I can read my handwriting right. Acts chapter 5, verse 12. It says, Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. This was a common place for the disciples and for the early church to gather when they gathered at the temple. And this is where Peter and John are going because this was their practice. That as they went to the temple and they did what they did, they would gather in this area. And I would argue that it's by no incident that Christ nor the disciples chose the place that was on the outer side of the, of the entrance for the Gentiles. Because Christ is not one that was coming to save the Jews only, but to the Jew and the Gentile, to the Greek and the barbarian, to the slave and to the free. That they're gathering here because the gospel is something that was so prevalent and so necessary to penetrate that of the religious practices of the day and time. They're gathering in a place where all people would come. But what we see in this moment is that all the Jews come there too because of what they're astounded at seeing. So Peter, in a Peter-like fashion, takes this opportunity and he preaches. But I would argue here, as you look at verse 12, it says, And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people. I don't believe Peter and John, when they did this miraculous thing, I don't think it was necessarily on their mind that he was about to throw down some wisdom of the Word of God. I don't think this was a planned thing. This was more of a moment in which Jesus told his disciples, don't plan what you're going to say, but trust in the Holy Spirit because you're going to have to give an answer and he will prepare you for it. So Peter, seeing them follow them, he then naturally has to do something, right? He has to address the people. There's a crowd running at them and it's not out of fear out of, or any of those things, but he sees an opportunity to proclaim the gospel. Last week, I tied this principle directly to that of us doing things in our lives that would soften the hearts of people. If it be having them through our homes or having them over for a meal, or if it be providing for people that, that are in need of a certain thing that we, have, we can offer to them, that we would do things in our life that would soften the hearts of people so that they can hear the gospel. And there's times I think well, we're intentional about that. But there's certainly times where opportunities just arise. And I would argue in those moments that we have to be prepared to share the gospel with people, as Peter does here. So, we're going to look at 12 through the end of this chapter, all the way through 26. And this is Peter's sermon in the temple, okay? Uh, we're going to try to break it down in about four fashions, because it's much like a sermon. Uh, Peter, in verses 12 through 18... He gives this a defense of who they are, what they're doing, but he also goes on the offensive side and he attacks them for what they are, uh, are sinful about. And then in 19 through 21, he gives this proposition to them. He gives them an application, if we were going to put it in modern terms. Then 22 through 25, he gives this biblical proof of why they should do this. And then he concludes his sermon by giving this one last charge. Very similar to a modern day sermon, except for I would put scripture on the front end instead of the back end. But this is Peter. He's a disciple. He's the leader of the early church. He can do it how he wants to do it. And maybe I should change the way I do things. So. But this is exactly what he's doing. He's preaching a sermon to these people. So let's see what he says. 12 through 18. says, And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, men of Israel... We've heard him say that multiple times already, specifically on the day of Pentecost. 
Why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us? So he begins, he asks two questions. Why are you wondering? Why are you astounded at what happened? This makes no sense. Why are you amazed at this? Did you, and he's, he's not saying this, but I think what would be running through his mind is, were you not present when Jesus did what he did? Were you not aware of the miraculous things in which Christ did on his days on this earth? Why are you astounded by this? But he, then he takes it a step farther and he says, and why do you stare at us as though we, by our own power or piety, have made him walk? Why are you amazed? Why are you looking to us? Peter's saying, look, we didn't do this in our power. We didn't do this in our piety. Piety is not a word that we use very often, but I think we should use it more often. Piety simply talks about one's merit to do something. So a lot of times the way that we would uh, take piety and we would have an opposite view of Peter here, that we would think if, if we did the right little things, like, for example, if we had someone into our home that we wanted to share the gospel with, that if everything was just lined up, if the kids did not interrupt, or if the food tasted just right, or the house looked just the right way, that it would open up this gospel time that we could share the gospel. And if we did it just the right way, if we talked about God right, if we talked about man right, if we talked about Jesus right, and we talked about how to respond right, and then, then that person would naturally respond. They would have no choice but to do exactly what we want them to do. Or that if we go and we give to those that are in need of something that we have to offer, that obviously they're going to respond to the gospel because it's in our power that they're doing this. Or even that if we as parents teach the gospel to our, parent, our children day in and day out and seek forgiveness when we're not the examples we should be, that somehow magically that's going to save them. See, piety would say that our works and our deeds is ability to save someone else or even ourselves. So Peter says, why are you amazed at this? And why are you even looking at our power and our piety? Why do you think that's what made him walk? Verse 13, he explains what did. And this explanation here is talking about what made this man walk. But I want to just throw it out there before we even just break it down is this is what saves people's souls. We certainly have to be faithful in proclaiming the gospel. We have to love people. We have to do all of those things. But we don't save anyone. We are just faithful in doing what God has called us to do. And then God does a work of salvation in those lives. Look at 13. It says, The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers. So I'm going to pause. Abraham, we know who Abraham is, the father of all nations. Father Abraham, you, many of you may know that song. Then he had Isaac. I don't sing, so I'm not going to finish the song. I may sing it to Noah later, though, as I greet him with a song, him or spiritual song. Um, and then Isaac's the, the, the child of Abraham. And then Jacob from there, that these are the, the, the father of the 12 nations. So he says, our father. So he's even talking about their forefathers. That the father of, our, of Abraham, the father of Isaac, the father of Jacob, the father of our, father, of our fathers glorified his servant Jesus. So his argument here is that those whom you claim to follow the leadership of glorified Jesus. But then he kind of digs in the dagger 
And he says, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. What Peter is talking about here is the moment in which Pilate says, I find no fault in this man and he's willing to release him. But the people began to chant, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. It wasn't just the high priest. It wasn't just the Sadducees. It was the people of the town that were chanting this. And then Pilate says, well, it is your tradition for us to release one. So he offered up Barabbas. And he offered up Jesus. And they chose Barabbas over Jesus. And what does Peter have to say about this? Is that you killed, you denied the holy and righteous one. You killed the author of life, John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was God. The Word was with God. One fourteen. The Word became flesh and dwelt among man. Genesis 1. How does God create the world? By speaking. Hebrews. The image of the invisible God in whom the world was created. What he's saying to these people is you killed God. Essentially. The God-man Christ in the flesh. You crucified him. You killed him. And then it says, and we are witnesses. And what's important about that is in Jewish culture, it didn't have to be, there had to be more than one witness. There had to at least be two witnesses to this. So Peter and John are saying, look, we're witnesses to what you did because we were there and we saw it all. What I want us to see in his words here as we continue to think through his sermon is Peter is proclaiming this boldly. Boldly. Even to the point that as we get on, you continue to see that boldness unpacked even more when they tell him not to preach the gospel and he goes out and does it again anyway. Peter is looking at the faces of men and women that could overpower them easily and take their lives away from them in the middle of this porch. And he's looking at them and he's doing just as he did in Acts chapter 2. He says, and you killed him. You did this and we saw it. But he doesn't stop there. He's not just blaming them. Verse 16. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is, through Jesus, has given the man this perfect health and presence of all of you. And now, brothers, I know that you are acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that this Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. So there's a lot of things going on in these three verses. But Peter is rightly giving He's rightly given just merit where it's due. He says, look, it's not in our piety, it's not in our power, but it's in the one that you crucified. It's the one whom they put his faith in. It's Jesus. By the name of Jesus, he was healed. And that's why he emphasized this to this layman, that in the name of Christ, you are healed. Stand up and walk, essentially. 
that this is the one that brought him full health. But look what he says in verse 17. And I think this is different than what we saw in Acts chapter 2. But I think it's continuing this idea of softening the hearts of these people. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as they also did your rulers. The word ignorance is one that we often bad at as something negative. Um, often we think that we take in, accompany the word ignorant with the word dumb or stupid or whatever word you want to put there that would be similar to that. But the word ignorant is really just meaning the lack of understanding. And so what he's looking at these people and saying is, look, you just really didn't understand. And then he encourages them a little bit farther. He says, and neither did your leaders. You're just following them. You're blind sheep following blind men. You just, you were ignorant to it. You didn't understand what was going on. And then in 18, he says, but God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. So he's taking this stuff all. He says, look, you worked in ignorance and then God worked in your ignorance and God fulfilled what God was going to fulfill. That God worked in a way that he planned on working and he worked within your ignorance to do so. And if you stop there, there would be hopelessness. Because what Peter would be standing up to and telling these people is that you, by your ignorance and by the ignorance of your leaders, you killed God himself. And that would stop them in their tracks. They would seem hopeless. There was no way coming back from that. Even to the point of how we even started this book, what does Judas do? In light of turning in Jesus, in light of the, the grief and the, the, the just soaking in what he had done, he hangs himself. So if you stop here, this hopelessness. But Peter continues. He gives him this proposition. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. He's looking at them and he's giving this proposition in light of your ignorance, in light of what led to the murder of the God-man, in light of your participation in that. Remember that this was what the prophets were foretelling. And as the prophets foretold it, you now have the opportunity to repent, to turn back that your sins may be blotted out. He looks at these people and he essentially says, you're a bunch of ignorant murderers. For us, it's no different. We're a bunch of ignorant, whatever sin you want to put after that. Lustful, liar, cheater, glutton, drunkard. Whatever sin you want to put in that category, we all fall into that category before we knew Christ. And then and even after, we're going to battle with sin. But before we knew Christ, there was something that was at the heart of who we are that damned us to hell. And so we are no different than these men. The only difference is they were actively involved in the murder of Christ, where we were passively involved in the sin in which we committed against the Father. And so he looks at them. He says, look, you're a bunch of ignorant murderers. But guess what? Repent, turn back, and your sins will be blotted out. For us, 
It's the same. The charge would be the same. Yes, you're certainly an ignorant individual that knows no better, that has sinned and turned against your God. And if you have not trusted in Jesus, my charge to you, my proposition to you would be no different than that of Peter. And that is to repent, therefore turn back and that your sins may be blotted out. That this Jesus, this one, the author of the life, the righteous and holy one, he is the one that offers forgiveness of sins. And he desires to do to all who call upon his name. Peter's argument then in 22 through 25 is this. Moses said, he pulls up the big guns here. Abraham and Moses, those are the two main guys they looked at. Big guns. Moses here says, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be in every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed for the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaimed these days. So what he says here is, look, Moses told us there was going to be a prophet that was going to come. And if you didn't listen to that prophet, then you would be destroyed. And not only that, but from Samuel on, there's other prophets that they came and they were proclaiming the one that was to come. And so what, what Peter's doing is just telling them, look, all of your scripture, all of your prophecy, all of your, your law, all of this is pointing to Jesus, the one whom you killed. I'll take a moment there and say that we should read scripture in light of that all of it is pointing back to Genesis chapter 3, forward to what Christ has done, or back to what Christ has done. So what I mean by that is much of what we look at in scripture is pointing back to the fall of man in Genesis 3, all of the Old Testament is pointing towards Jesus in some way or another. And all of the New Testament is pointing back to what Jesus has accomplished for us. And in this, what Peter's doing is giving an argument to them that this is the one. That the shadows of the one that was to come, the prophecies, all of this, this was the one whom he was speaking of, who the prophets were speaking of. And in verse 25, he goes on and he makes it personal to them. It says, and you are the sons of the prophets and all uh, and of the covenants that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your offering, offspring shall be the families of the earth be blessed. What is he getting at here? He's saying, look, you are the descendants of Abraham. And what I want you to understand about this descendants of Abraham and your offspring shall the families of the earth be blessed. Now, I could go back and I could look at the covenant God makes with Abraham. And I would be glad to do that after we preaching and after we sing together as we're just breaking down things and getting ready to go. Or if you want to come over for lunch, we can look at Abraham's covenant. But Abraham's covenant was rooted in the fact that there was one that was going to come that would make Abraham the father of all nations. What he meant by that is not just the Jewish nations, but all of the Gentile nations, all of the ites, all of, the, all of those individuals, so that they could believe and trust in the, the descendant of Abraham and have salvation in him. Speaking of Jesus. And when Peter uttered these words, they knew exactly what he meant. But then he concludes his sermon by saying in verse 26, God having raised him up, God having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by the running of every one of you from your wickedness. God, the Father, 
having raised up his servant, talking of Jesus, sent him to you first, meaning the Jews, back to Jerusalem, to bless you by the turning every one of you from your wickedness. To the Jew first and the Gentile second. This is how the whole book of Acts is laid out. The Jew first, the Gentile second. First is, we're going to stop in this sermon series around chapter 12. We're going to go Old Testament and then come back to it. Um, chapter 12, 13 is when they're addressing the, the Jews. And that's where it happens. It's Peter, the John, the early church, Jerusalem. They're addressing the Jews in Jerusalem. And they're proclaiming the gospel to them. And what he's saying here is that Jesus came to you first so that you could turn away from your wickedness. He's giving them one last plea. He's already given the proposition to repent, turn away from your sins so that your sins may be blotted out. Now he's giving them one last plea before he ends what he has to say. By turning every one of you from your wickedness. Turn from your wickedness and turn to Jesus. That's what this last verse is saying simply. This is Peter's sermon. And what I want to see in that is Peter's bold and biblical sermon in the temple. Certainly bold. He's looking at a bunch of people that get to kill him. He says, you killed this man, you're ignorant, you're dumb, all of those things, right? He's, he's just looking at them. He's not mixing words. He's telling the truth how it is. But we can also see that just sprinkled throughout all of it, it's just biblical proof of what he's trying to get at here. I would argue that our sermons should be no different. They should be bold and they should be biblical. Our gospel presentations should be no different. They should be bold and they should be biblical. But I want to see as we end our time together the result of bold and biblical preaching. Verse 1 of chapter 4. They were speaking to the people, the priest, the captains of the temple, the Sadducees came in. The priests, that's pretty easy for us to understand. Those are the ones that would make sacrifices. The captain of the temple was essentially, uh, you, had the great, you had the high priest, and then you had the captain of the temple. which He was the priest underneath the high priest. And he essentially functioned as someone over the, milita- the, the uh, temple police, right? And so what he's, this guy here is the captain of the police that governed the temple. And so the, the priest probably went and got this guy, told him everything that was going on. He and then this group of priests also accompanied with that is the Sadducees, which were just the ones teaching. So these group of religious leaders, they, they hear about what's going on, and it's clear what's going on. This lame man was healed, and everyone is following Peter and John. They're freaked out right now. They're annoyed right now of what is happening in their temple. They're losing control. Verse 2, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them. They put them into custody until the next day, for it was already evening. So Peter and John, they get arrested for preaching the gospel. This is the first count in the Acts that we see the arresting and the persecution of people for the gospel's sake. It's going to get much worse as we walk through Acts. That's okay. God works in the midst of persecution, as we will see next week in chapter 4. But what I want us to see is something I quoted last week, but I want us to read it again, chapter 4, and give some clarity to it. In verse 4, 
but many of those who had heard the word believed. And the number of the men came to about 5,000. We don't know how many in this moment got saved. But what we saw in the day of Pentecost is that around 3,000 got saved. Numbers were added to them daily. And at this point, that number, whatever, how many ever it was, it was up to 5,000. Whatever it was before, after this, it was about 5,000. So at this point, when Peter and John are in this temple, Peter preaching the word boldly and preaching biblically, what happens is people come to know Christ and trust in him. Man, that's awesome. And why that's awesome is because as Peter said in the very first part of his sermon to these people, as though by our own power and piety we have made him walk, Peter's sermon is not based in his power or his piety. It wasn't in his presentation. Peter is a fisherman turned into a discipler, turned into a leader of a church. Yes, trained by the greatest trainer there could have been for three years, but certainly this was a man that was a normal, everyday man. He did not save anyone in that temple. He did not make that lame man walk. What he did was being faithful, preaching boldly and biblically to those around him. And the outcome of that was very simply, they came to know Jesus. Now, I would be ignorant to not state that not everyone in this crowd came to know Jesus. So just because we bold, we're bold and biblical in our presentation of the gospel or the preaching of God's word does not mean everyone's going to come to know Jesus. But what it does give us is a clear understanding of what our responsibility is, and that is simply to be bold and biblical as we present the word of God to those around us that need to hear it. Or as elders of Redeemer, that we're bold and biblical in what we preach from God's word. Or as we teach God's word, that we're bold and biblical. And I'm done saying bold and biblical at this point. So the walkaway application to this is let us be faithful. Let us be faithful in proclaiming the truth of God's word and the power of God's word. Not in our power, not in our piety, but in the goodness of the God that provided it for us. And let's trust in him to save all souls. Or simply as we put in our mission statement here at Redeemer is that we exist or we desire to make disciples, to glorify God by making disciples, by proclaiming the gospel, making disciples, and resting in Jesus. That as we proclaim the gospel, we rest in Jesus. As we make disciples, we rest in Jesus. Why? Because he is the one who does the work of this saving individuals through the power of the Spirit of God. So let us be people, I'm going to say it one more time, that preach the word of God boldly and biblically and trusting that God is going to do something that only God can do. Let's pray as Nick comes.